let me pray for us now as we come to God's word. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful uh, that you have called us to be your people. We are thankful that you've called us to worship you. And Lord, we give thanks for the opportunity to end this day in worship, even as we sang your praise this morning, so we've done so again this evening. We thank you for your word, and as we look to your scriptures now, we pray that you would feed us, that you would encourage us. God, we want to have eyes to see wonderful things in your word, and would you give us ears to hear your word? Would you give us hearts to love it and wills to obey it? We pray in Jesus' name. We're in Psalm 129. This is one of the Psalms of Ascent. And so hear now God's holy and errant word. This is Psalm 129. Greatly they have afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, Greatly they have afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back, they made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turn backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms. Nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. And thus ends this reading of God's word. May he write his eternal truth on all our hearts. Well, the Psalms of Ascent, as we have said in this series, uh, were most likely sung by God's people Israel as they journeyed on their way up to Jerusalem uh, to worship the Lord in the temple. And there is somewhat of, I call it, an anticipatory character in these Psalms as the Israelites were eager and expectant of their chance to meet with God. Uh, and, And this raises an important question as we read through all the Psalms of Ascent. Because we realize that there are a variety of tones that exist when God's people anticipated corporate worship. Uh, So some Psalms of Ascent, as you might expect, uh, have a a tone of joyful expectation. Like Psalm 22, which begins, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. But other Psalms have a tone of, of despair or heaviness, like Psalm 130, which begins, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. And so as Israel has journeyed on their way to Jerusalem, they're, they're going to worship God. Sometimes their hearts were full of joyful expectation, and sometimes their hearts were full of heavy despair. So the interesting question is, well, well what do you do with that? And I think part of the answer is, is that we realize both in great joy and in great despair God's people still move towards him in worship. And, and the collection of the Psalms of Ascent shows us the, the diversity in situations and emotional states that God's people found themselves in, yet they all move in the same direction towards worship. This is a, a wonderfully, wonderful, wonderfully practical encouragement uh, as we think about the practical realities of our world and how they impact our attitudes toward worship. I don't know what it's like in your house from 8 a.m. to 9 a.m. on a Sunday morning or what it's like from 4.45 to 5.45, uh, but, but I know that there are probably, if your house is anything like my house, there are probably some Sundays 
where you feel like Psalm 122 and you can't wait to get here. And there are probably some other Sundays where your heart is heavy as you come to the church. This heaviness of heart can come from a, a, a number of things. It could be the heaviness of your own sin, maybe the heaviness of the natural disasters we see in the world, especially these past few weeks. It could be the, the heaviness of difficult health or difficult finances or, or difficult children or just the heaviness of trying to get everybody out the door on time. And it's a wonderful encouragement to see that in the Psalms of Ascent, God's people move towards him in worship, even when their hearts are heavy. So tonight in Psalm 129, we encounter God's people with heavy hearts. And it's not particularly the heaviness of their sin or the heaviness of natural disaster or health. In particular, they are coming to God with the heaviness of their historical affliction as God's people. So imagine Israel on this journey. They are, are thinking of the glory of the Lord, and they are recounting the history of his dealings with them. And as they think back over their history, the theme of affliction and oppression surfaces. Psalm, one, Psalm 129 is a lament. Israel is lamenting how they've been mistreated. And this theme of affliction is one we see come up over and over again in the Bible. When we read about the story of God's people in the Old Testament, we see lots of affliction. And even moving into the New Testament, we see God's people suffering persecution and mistreatment. God's people have often been subject to great affliction. And this is what makes the people's hearts heavy in Psalm 129. And Psalm 129 shows us not only that God's people had heavy hearts, but it shows us how they responded to their heavy hearts. That is, how they responded to thinking about their mistreatment. And it tells us this, that God's righteous judgment is the hope of God's people in their affliction. The righteous judgment of God is the hope for the people of God in their affliction. And so in this psalm, we see God's people acting and responding in three ways. I want to walk through those three ways with you tonight. The first way we see God's people responding to their affliction is this. First, God's people remember their great affliction. They remember their great affliction. This is particularly in the first three verses. Look again at them with me. The psalm starts, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, Greatly they have afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The flowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. So right here at the outset of the psalm, the theme of affliction surfaces. The psalmist twice recalls uh, this idea. And what he does is he invites all Israel together to say with him, greatly they've afflicted me. He says, greatly they've afflicted me from my youth. And what, what you notice right away is there, there's personal language. The psalmist says me. And, and there's also a, a, a corporate feel. He says, let all Israel say, or let Israel say. And so so you think about how do we understand the putting together of the individual language and also the corporate language in these first couple of verses. Uh, I think it could be a number of things. It could be that the, the psalmist is referring to a suffering that was common to all Israel, and he just uses the word me. Could be that he's calling the whole nation to identify with the individual suffering of one person. Uh, it could be that he's dramatizing Israel's suffering through one individual testimony. And it could also very well be uh, speaking prophetically about the afflictions of Christ. 
I think there's some validity to all four of those. Most likely, I think the affliction that he's speaking of was both individual for him and corporate for, for the whole nation. That is, the suffering of national Israel was experienced concretely, not just by a large people, but concretely by individuals. And the character of this affliction is understood more clearly when you think about it in individual terms. When you think about what one person went through instead of just saying, we were afflicted. And so, what affliction is the psalmist talking about? Well, there's a clue when he says, We've, I've been afflicted from my youth. This phrase points us to the very beginning of the life of Israel as a nation. And so naturally, we think back to Israel's slavery in Egypt in the book of Exodus. You'll remember that the Egyptian pharaoh in Egypt made Israel into a nation of slaves to be mistreated and to be overworked. And the pharaoh went on to order that any sons born to the nation of Israel would be killed. And so Exodus 2.14 says that Egypt made their lives bitter with hard service. So this is what the, the psalmist is thinking back to. He's saying, from the very beginning of this people called Israel, there's been mistreatment. And notice as well, he, he says, not just they afflicted me during my youth. He says, they afflicted me from my youth. I think the, the sense there is that his people have faced oppression, not just at the beginning, but throughout their history. And isn't this, again, what we see when we read the, the biblical story? When we read the Old Testament, we see the people of God faced with all kinds of enemies. Not just the Egyptians, but later it would be the Philistines and the, the Syrians and the Moabites. And later on, the, the Assyrians and the Babylons. And eventually, Israel's carried off into captivity. So the people of God are on their way to, to meet with him. They're coming to worship in the temple. And the psalmist says, hey, everybody together remember how much we've been mistreated. It's a little surprising Derek Kidner, an Old Testament scholar, says, whereas most nations tend to look back on what they've achieved, Israel reflects here on what she has survived. And look at how he describes their affliction, the affliction they've survived in verse 3. It says, the plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. I confess I didn't know what furrows were. I had to look this up. The imagery here is agricultural. What's going on is a, a farmer would take a metal plow, uh, and he would attach it to an ox. As the ox would walk through the field, he would pull the plow, and the plow would cut through the earth. It would dig out a long trench for the farmer to plant his seed. And so this long, narrow trench that's carved out of the earth is what's called a furrow. When you put it together, this is an absolutely gruesome image. The psalmist is saying his oppressor's plowed his own back. They, they carved his flesh as an ox plows a field. They left trenches in his own body. And this is how he chooses to describe what the affliction of God's people was like. I think their affliction in, in Egypt and their affliction throughout their history. And this language may be metaphorical, but even if it is, that doesn't make it any less vivid or any less horrible. The psalmist is reminding us that the people of God have faced absolutely terrible oppression. And yet even in the midst of this terrible oppression, you see in verse 2 that he's not just asking Israel to remember their affliction. When he asks them to remember them, he's saying this, 
Greatly they've afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. So even in the midst of this vivid memory of this flesh-carving oppression, the psalmist declares that the affliction of the people of God is not the last word or the final word. And so to say they have not prevailed over me, it doesn't mean that Israel's enemies never had the upper hand. It doesn't mean that there were never apparent victories. But it means that the apparent victories of the enemies of God's people were never as the enemies hoped. They were never ultimate victories. Israel was never destroyed. And so when verse 2 tells us they have not prevailed, what God is saying to us is that he has been faithful to preserve his people for years and years, even through lots of harsh treatment. And Israel was harshly mistreated, but their enemies didn't prevail. And surely there's reason to pause here and, and realize that this psalm points us forward to the affliction of another Israelite who was to come. A man who would be, like corporate Israel, oppressed and afflicted. A man of sorrows. A man acquainted with grief. A man who knew the imagery of this psalm all too well, who was beaten and whipped, and having furrows carved into the flesh of his back. For the psalmist, his hope was shadowy. But as Isaiah tells us, by the stripes or by the wounds of the servant of the Lord, God would save his people. And so generations after Psalm 129, Jesus came as the, the truly faithful Israelite who would suffer unjustly, just like God's people had, yet he would prevail over his enemies. We pause here to recognize that we, we, we read this psalm as Christians, and Christ came to be afflicted in the place of God's people. And by his affliction, he rescues God's people. He prevails over his enemies when his enemies thought they were prevailing over him. And so we can't read this psalm as Christians without recognizing that Christ is the ultimate reason that God's people will prevail. For the psalmist, as I said, this was a, a shadowy hope. He didn't see the fulfillment in Christ clearly. And for us, this hope is, is realized. We see the fullness of what the psalm looks forward to. But just because the psalmist's hope was shadowy, it doesn't mean his hope was less true. There's a hope in this psalm that says the enemies of, God, of God's people have not prevailed. And so as he journeys toward Jerusalem, the, the psalmist's heart is heavy. But in his despair, he's not without hope. God's people are, are remembering their affliction. And, and they're not doing that just to feel sad. They're doing that because in their heaviness of heart, they recall what their God was bringing them through. So what is their attitude towards their enemies as they move forward with heavy hearts? We said God's people remember their great affliction. And second, we see that God's people pray for full justice. God's people pray for full justice. At the end of this psalm, there is a prayer. And verses 5 through 8 say this. It says, May all who hate Zion be put to shame and be turned backward. Let them be like the grass in the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, or the binder of sheaves his arms. Nor do those who pass by say, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. And a quick reading, it looks like the end of this psalm ends on a happy note, promising blessing. What the psalmist is saying is, I am praying that, Lord, you would not give blessing 
those people who are oppressing Israel. Psalm 129 can be counted among what's called the imprecatory psalms. Imprecatory psalms are that category of psalms that appeal to God's wrath against evildoers. Imprecatory psalms, as you would imagine, are often difficult for modern hearers. And especially as many of the imprecatory psalms contain much harsher language than what we find in this psalm. But here, the psalmist is essentially praying that the enemies of Israel would not see honor, that they would not know blessing, that they would not find success. He's saying, God, would you turn them backwards? Would you make them non-prosperous and non-fruitful? Again, here the imagery is agricultural. Uh, Ancient homes that are spoken of here would have uh, a flat clay or mud roof. And over time, there would be little shoots of grass that sprout up. But obviously, in the, the hot Middle Eastern sun, and without any protection, and without any root system, the, these shoots of grass would quickly be scorched. They would wither and die. And so if a farmer went up to a housetop to try to gather a harvest of this grass, he would gather it all up, and it wouldn't even fill the palm of his hand, the text tells us. Whereas there would be fruitful harvests where they're gathering bundles together, and 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 they can hardly carry them, so they're trying to figure out an efficient way to do it. This harvest on, on this housetop of withered grass is just worthless. There's, there's nothing to it. And so the psalmist is saying, make them the opposite of fruitful. Make them utterly unfruitful. Make their efforts an embarrassment. I think there's a picture of utter unfruitfulness this weekend If you are a college football fan, there was a a particular game where, won't embarrass the school, uh, but there was a particular game, a small school against a a big school. And the small school, they were way down, but they were still trying to score, and uh, they got it down to the seven-yard line. So, okay, second and goal, here we go. Snap the ball, second and goal, and you might have seen this on ESPN. Uh, The long snap goes over the quarterback's head, so he turns around and runs after it. As the quarterback tries to dive on the ball at, like, the 20, uh, he ends up pushing it or kicking it further back. And so then guys from the other team run, and they try to dive on it. And they just keep kicking it further back. Uh, and this keeps happening over and You can go watch the highlights. Over and over, and somebody finally falls on the ball at the opposite seven-yard line or inside the 10. So, so this team lost 89 yards on one play. Talk about utterly unfruitful. Talk about th- this effort was an embarrassment. That play it w- was an embarrassment. It was utterly unfruitful. And as I said before, th- this psalm is not the, the harshest language of the imprecatory psalms. He's saying, I want them to be utterly unfruitful. And even though it's not the harshest language, it still raises the question for us, what do we do with imprecatory psalms? What do we do with prayers in the Bible that ask for judgment on those who are against God's people? Is it right for Christians to, to pray that? And if it is, how does that fit with the gospel of grace? And if it's not, why is it in the Bible in the first place? Well, I can't answer all those questions tonight, but I want to come at them uh, a little bit in this text. And to begin to answer the question, we need to see how these oppressors are described in the psalm. In verse 5, they are called all who hate Zion. That is, those people that hate the city of God's people. In verse 3, we see a description of their violent deeds against Israel. 
And in verse 4, they're called the wicked. And so we must remember here that the judgment that's prayed for is not just because of the injustice done to man, but it's because of the moral wickedness done to God and to his people. See, God identifies with his people and he takes offense at injustice done to them. C.S. Lewis talks about this in his book, Reflections on the Psalms. Now, some of what C.S. Lewis says there requires discernment, but but he has a, a brilliant insight into the Psalms. He says this, the ferocious parts of the Psalms serve as a reminder that there is in the world such a thing as wickedness that is hateful to God. If you go out on campus, my guess is that your random survey of lots of people would yield that popular opinion does not think there is such a thing as wickedness that is hateful to God. And to our ears, to to our modern ears, it seems out of place to pray for judgment. It goes against modern sensibilities. It goes against Midwestern niceness. And yet, I think if you are to ask anyone who's faced oppression, if you were to ask anyone who's been systematically afflicted or mistreated, you'd be quick to hear it's, it's very natural to want retaliation. It's very natural to want justice for people who have been oppressed. So you think, of course Jews in Germany in World War II would want Nazis brought to justice. Of course minorities in America who have experienced explicit racism and who have experienced the systemic effects of oppression, of course they have a cry for justice. When we see injustice and oppression in the world, it's no wonder people cry for justice. And Christians are to be those who cry for justice. We stand with people who are oppressed because we as Christians stand with God's people who have historically been oppressed. That's what this psalm shows us. And so we ought not minimize cries for justice in our world. We join with cries for justice and we cry for God to be the righteous judge. There's a a Croatian scholar named Miroslav Volf, who is from, as I said, Croatia. He's seen the atrocities of genocide and oppression in his own homeland. And here's what he says about imprecatory psalms, this this theologian and and scholar who's, who's seen these things firsthand. He says this, whatever else these psalms might have done to those who listened, they brought the puzzlement and rage of the oppressed over injustice into the presence of the God of justice, who is the God of the oppressed. For the followers of the crucified Messiah, the main message of the imprecatory Psalms is this, rage belongs before God, not in the reflectively managed and manicured form of a confession, but as a pre-reflective outburst from the depths of the soul. This is no mere cathartic discharge of pent-up aggression before the Almighty who ought to care much more significantly, by placing unattended rage before God, we place both our unjust enemy and our own vengeful self face to face with the God who loves and does justice. I think there are are two things that are really compelling in what Wolf is saying. I think first, what he's encouraging people towards is, is an emotional rawness and honesty. He's saying, when we read scripture, God has a heart for those who are afflicted. And when we see people who are afflicted, and when we are afflicted ourselves, we're right to cry out to God. We don't need to, as he says 
manicure, uh, manicure our confessions, but, but God wants us to, to outburst to him. God knows what's on our hearts. She says, cry out to me. And second, I think in, in what Wolf says, he, he seems to put uh, a guardrail or a parameter up on imprecatory prayers. He says, there's actually a, a safeguard in our taking our prayers for judgment to God and not first directly to people. Again, he says, by placing unattended rage before God, we place both our unjust enemy and our own vengeful self face to face with a God who loves and does justice. So the people of God speak out against injustice. And the people of God pray for justice. For why would we want the wicked to prosper? We don't want to see unrighteousness increase. We want to see righteousness increase. Christians are people who love righteousness and hate unrighteousness. And so with God's people of old then, we, we join in praying for justice. And we see things in our world that we, we should pray for justice for. So God's people not only look back and remember their affliction, they pray for justice. And not only do they look to the future and pray for full justice, there's even a deeper step here. And third, it's this, that God's people ultimately trust their righteous God. God's people trust their righteous God. You may have noticed that we haven't talked about verse 4, and it stands right in the middle of this psalm. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. So you have the backward-facing remembering uh, at the front of the psalm. You have the forward-facing prayer for the future on uh, the end of the psalm. And right in the middle, the meat of the sandwich is not past, it's not future. It's an eternal theological truth about who God is. The Lord is righteous. This is the theological anchor of this psalm. It, it, it's keeping the psalm upright. It's, it's hemming in the, these raw emotions and these prayers and these experiences of affliction. The psalmist is placing his hope in God's righteousness. This is the theological key to the psalm. What he's reminding Israel and what he's teaching us is that God is just, that he always does what's upright, that he never miscarries justice, that the Lord is righteous. And in his justice, verse 4 says, he has cut the cords of the wicked. Most likely this phrase, cut the cords, is referring back to the, the image of plowing in verse 3. So what you would do back in the day is you would tie this plow to an oxen with these cords. And so verse 4 is saying, God cut the cords, and so the ox runs off, and the plow sits there. It doesn't cut anymore. To cut the cords means to take away the power of the wicked to oppress God's people. And you notice in verse 4, it's rendered in the past tense. He has cut the cords of the wicked. And I ask, if, there, if their power is taken away, if he's really cut the cords, why is there still a prayer for judgment? Why does it seem like there's still some kind of affliction? I think the best way of understanding this verse is to understand it as a, a promise emphasizing God's unwavering commitment to do what is right and to punish those who do evil. That is, God is so righteous, he is so upright, he is so committed to, to making justice fully known 
that it's almost as if he has already cut the cords of the wicked. So even when the psalmist cries out for help, even when God's people face affliction, this verse encourages them that God, as the righteous Lord of the universe, will cut the cords of the wicked. And so God's people trust God's righteousness to bring God's judgment. God's people trust him. We put our hope in him, even when it looks like there's injustice in the world, even when there is injustice in the world. There's another thing here that's, that's ruled out, or there's another parameter that's put on this psalm when we see that the psalmist hopes in God's righteousness. And it's that you don't see an aspect here of personal vindictiveness or, or, or vengefulness. And we would know with the counsel of the rest of Scripture that the Bible encourages us against taking vengeance. In Romans 12, Paul quotes the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, and he says this, Romans 12, 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Deuteronomy, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. You might say, well, yeah, the New Testament says that, and that's the New Testament God is loving, but the Old Testament God is, is wrathful. That's not what's going on. Even in the Old Testament, we see God requiring his people to leave justice to him and to resist the temptation to be personally vindictive. Here's what we read in Leviticus 19. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against your own people. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. In Psalm, or Proverbs 24, it says this, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it be displeased. So the Bible's teaching on this matter is nuanced. It's, it's complex. God calls us not to be personally vindictive. And so the point is not, well, sometimes you get really angry and pray in precatory psalms, and other times you feel really nice, and you don't pray that, and instead you forgive. The point is that when you see injustice and when you are afflicted, you entrust justice to the hands of the faithful righteous Lord to judge rightly, because you believe that judgment is ultimately his to give. You believe that it's not my job as a creature to carry out justice on the earth. That's the Lord's job. And so I feel and I cry out and I pray, but it's not my task as a, as a human to bring justice and righteousness on the earth. That's what the Lord does. That's why we pray your kingdom come, your will be done. And what we realize when we think about the Lord's righteousness is that this is the kind of God we want. We want a just God. We don't want an unjust God. This is what Wolf says. He says, if God were not angry at injustice and deception, and if he did not make a final end of all violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. So what are we to do with imprecatory psalms? As I said, we're not answering every question tonight, but two points of application for psalms like this. First, we don't shy away from them, and second, we don't leave Christ out of them. So first, we don't shy away from them. We read Psalm 129, we read it in the context of the Holy Scriptures. This is God's word to us. We don't pick and choose which parts of the Bible are good for us, are relevant for us. We receive God's word because we trust him as a good father. 
We trust that God inspired even this for our good. And here, these psalms remind us that God's people have almost always been afflicted. And God himself, we remember, God himself in the person of Jesus was himself a victim of great affliction. And so we're meant to have a godly sense of anger when we see injustice. We should pray for evil to be thwarted, for injustice to end, for those that seek oppression and and, and to forcefully gain over other people, that they would be humbled and brought low. We don't shy away from prayers like this. And second, we don't leave Christ out of prayers like this. As we read back into the Old Testament, we read it through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So as we pray for justice, we remember the justice of God against our own sin in Christ. We remember as we read this psalm that every sin, that every injustice, that every act of wickedness will be paid for. God will not let any wickedness go unpunished. And so we remember that all sin will be paid for either by a sinner facing God's judgment or by the Son of God facing God's judgment on the cross for us. We remember that the judgment of Christ on behalf of sinners was the pouring out of God's righteousness. It was the pouring out of his justice. And so again, we don't pick and choose what to read in the Bible. We read the Bible Christianly. We read it with the mind of Christ. We, we read it with the gospel informing all of our understanding and all of our interpretation and all of our application. And so practically then, if you ask, when I see injustice, do I pray for the, the humbling and the damnation of the, that wicked person, or do I pray for the conversion and salvation of that person? And I think what we can say is we pray for justice. We pray for justice, and we know that justice might be God shows his wrath to sinners, and that would be right and fair. But we also know that God might choose to show his justice in Christ to that wicked person and show them forgiveness for their sins. And I rejoice whether God's justice is exalted in his wrath or God's justice is exalted in his son. This should humble us we realize that we have received salvation from God at the just punishment of his son in our place. Remember what we sang this morning. We celebrated God's justice in our, in our closing song this morning. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. For God, the righteous, is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Our salvation in Christ is an act of God's righteous adjustment. The gospel is the satisfaction of God's justice in Christ. And so God's people have heavy hearts in this psalm as they move towards the temple in worship. And as they cry out to God, they pray for justice. And so God communicates to us as we approach him in worship. Sometimes we do that with heavy hearts. I think especially in the past couple years, we've seen heavy things in our world, and there are injustices that we see all around us. Christians stand up for injustice. We, we, we speak out for the oppressed. We pray for God to judge rightly. We leave it to him. He is the sovereign Lord and judge of the earth. And we pray that everything God would do 
would be right because ultimately our trust and our hope is in him as our righteous judge. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful for your word and we are thankful for your unwavering commitment to justice. We thank you that you are the sovereign Lord of the universe and it is good news that we are not. Lord, we pray for justice in our world. We pray against evils that we see. We pray that you would turn back those who hate you and who hate your people. We pray that you would make evildoers unfruitful. That you would bring justice to those who are afflicted. That you would come alongside those who have been oppressed and show your name to be a strong, mighty tower. And we pray that you would show your righteousness in the judgment of Jesus Christ for the sake of all who believe. It's in his name we pray.